One of the hardest things that I ever experienced was having to reflect on what had happened to me. Being abused as a child, I sort of created this worldview that the world was full of monsters and that I didn't really know where I was going to be safe, but I didn't really recognize that. I remember when I was sitting around a table full of women and they were all talking about these experiences of violence and I just thought, wow, there's so much internalized shame about our experience that not only are we unable to name the violence that is happening to us, but we are unable to say the violence that is happening to us or happened to us without feeling like we were somehow responsible for it. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Before the pandemic, one in three women worldwide experienced physical or sexual violence mostly by an intimate partner. And since the outbreak of COVID-19, emerging data and reports from those on the front lines have shown that all types of violence against women and girls, particularly domestic violence, has intensified. Isolation makes the situation worse, as women and girls are vulnerable because of a lack of established social support systems. The temporary shutdown of non-essential businesses has increased unemployment rates, and quarantine conditions are associated with increased alcohol abuse and depression. All of this, coupled with stay-at-home orders, has led to a global increase in domestic violence. This shadow pandemic is growing amidst the COVID-19 crisis, and we need a global collective effort to stop it. As COVID-19 cases continue to strain health services, essential services like domestic violence shelters and helplines have reached capacity. More needs to be done to prioritize addressing violence against women in COVID-19 responses and recovery efforts. On today's podcast, Jessica Teresi, survivor of childhood sexual abuse and intimate partner violence, and an advocate for change and expert in sexual violence, trauma and prevention, will unpack the key factors that lead some people to become domestic abusers and importantly, what we can do to tackle this issue. Domestic violence is a really broad term that typically includes three things. One is intimate partner violence, which usually occurs between two partners and involves things like stalking, psychological harm, sexual and physical violence. And then secondly, elder abuse, which involves neglect or intentional acts which cause harm. And finally, child abuse, which includes physical harm, sexual violence, as well as emotional harm. Globally, domestic violence has increased since COVID. For example, reports from local police near the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in China's Hubei province indicate that domestic violence tripled during February 2020 compared to February 2019. In France, domestic reports increased by 30% since they initiated a March 17 lockdown. 
Data from the United States Police Departments provide some early insight into the effect COVID-19 has had on domestic violence in some regions. For example, in Portland, Oregon, public schools closed on March 16, 2020, and on March 23rd came the stay-at-home orders. Following these events, the Portland Police Bureau recorded a 22% increase in arrests related to domestic violence. The challenge with sharing these statistics is that we often forget these are real people with real stories and experiences, as Jessica explains. So I am a victim survivor of childhood sexual abuse and the intimate partner violence. And I started speaking out to my friends and family when I was a teenager, uh, but really got involved in the work of sexual violence advocacy probably about eight years ago. Prior to that, I was working with adults with disabilities. So I was always in some form of advocacy, helping people who were extremely vulnerable. And when I got involved with the advocacy work, I just really felt more and more of a pull to speak to the experiences of victims of sexual assault. Uh, And as I did that work, I started to recognize just how the violence that I had experienced really set up my worldview. And I began to really understand the difficulties that we have in preventing violence because so many of us have personal views that are built upon our own experiences of trauma. And so that really creates a barrier for us to prevent it if we're all operating underneath individual ideologies about how trauma works, how we should prevent it. And so I worked at a local agency. I built curriculum for the K through 12 schools there on healthy relationships and went in, provided a lot of the curriculum for students. And they were really hungry for real life personal stories. Those were the times when I would share my own personal stories or stories of individuals that I had worked with that they kind of quieted down and started listening and taking it a little bit more seriously. And so about two years ago, I decided to break off from that. My husband and I moved and kind of started fresh and I started speaking out on my own uh, to share my own stories, but focusing on shifting culture and helping break down barriers so that we could have honest conversations about why violence still happens and what individually we need to do in order to see a significant collective shift in the violence that we all say we want to have end. One of the things that I always say that makes me different as a speaker, as somebody who is coming out to talk about it, is I don't rely a whole lot on statistics. (laughs) I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that I'm much more of a speaker than somebody who sits down and looks at numbers. But we, you know, see a lot of those numbers of, you know, one in four women in their lifetime will experience a sexual assault. And oftentimes... When we say one in six boys will experience a sexual assault, people sort of, their eyes glaze over because they've heard that statistic so often. And so my whole focus is on saying, look, one incident of sexual assault is too much. There's a tendency when trying to understand why women and men experience domestic violence to blame the victim or explain the perpetrator's behavior rather than try to address the core reasons why, as a society, people are being raised to behave in violent ways. When we consider the problem in this way, 
We all have to reflect on the role that each of us play in enabling domestic violence. When we look at the world and we see how many women and how many boys and vulnerable groups are impacted by sexual violence or domestic violence, and if it's if, if internally we need it to be 80% of the world is experiencing this problem, well, then that says a whole lot about us as individuals, right? And how we have sort of allowed justifications for violence to happen. And it happens through our own experiences of trauma, how that was resolved or how that was handled when we were younger. And it also happens through the music and the media, the TV, the you know, political climate, all of these things that we're consistently seeing that sort of make it normal for us to hear about sexual assault in the community. And so when we're talking about, you know, sexual assault of college students, the freshman college students, they experience rates of sexual assault at such high levels in their freshman year, typically by juniors and seniors in college, right, then we start to focus our energy on saying, well, there's just this vulnerability within those people. They have to understand the shift that they have to take when they go into college, yada, 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 instead of looking and saying, hey, how many people are we raising in our society that start to behave in violent ways And we never challenge them on that because our society as a whole values hyper-masculinity. They value people saying how many partners they've had sex with and bragging about that and talking about conquests or or anything like that. And, And now they get to college and they just start doing exactly what it is that in high school they were allowed to do. And so I think what makes it difficult about truly getting good statistics around sexual violence is that it's so pervasive that oftentimes when we talk about the experience of sexual violence, we don't even know that we're talking about it. For instance, when we talk with women who are in uh, domestic violence situations, rarely will they talk about the experience of sexual assault. They will talk about the amount of times that they were called a name or the amount of times that they were hit, but they don't recognize the coercive nature of the sexual assaults that took place inside of their relationships. And we see that happening in relationships that are intimate partner violence. So you're primarily just seeing sexual violence instances with teens or young adults who just kind of talk about coercive sex, but they label it as pressure. They label it as, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I just kind of went along with it, or I didn't feel like I could say no. He just kept asking, or she just kept asking. And so now the dialogue is changed from being able to acknowledge, hey, this is a form of violence, to uh, it's just like normal life. This is how we live. And our responsibility as a society working towards ending violence is by really removing the ability to scapegoat what violence actually looks like. And then I think people around the world would be a little bit more receptive to understanding that violence is actually way more pervasive than we think it is. And then people would feel more comfortable coming forward and talking about it uh, because they're not going to be shamed or they're not going to be denied when they actually come out and say, hey, this person, I actually think what happened was rape.
Domestic abuse is often predicated on fear. Fear of what the abuser will do next. Fear that you're going mad. Fear that no one will believe you. Many of those affected are understandably afraid of how their partner will react if they report them. But some do anyway. In order to name assault or call out rape, violence, assault or abuse, every single one of us has to get comfortable with confronting these topics, as Jessica explains. We have to become incredibly comfortable having uncomfortable conversations about our own behaviors, our own ideologies that lead us to accepting rape myths, that lead us to accepting a culture of violence as just simply being normal. And we have to own that we have individual responsibility as this. All of us have some form of thinking that perpetuates the violence that we see in the world. And so oftentimes when we have conversations with larger groups, people will sort of focus their lens on different groups, right? We'll focus our lens on individuals who purchase sex through prostitution. They're the ones that really need to stop doing what they're doing. Are the millions of people around the world who consume pornography. They're the ones that are fueling child sex trafficking and child pornography and, and sort of this. But, but again, yes, we need to be able to challenge systems and groups of individuals. But individually, how often do you ascribe to certain beliefs that shun or silent victim survivors? How often do you sort of belittle the experience of sexual assault of one victim survivor because that victim survivor didn't experience what you expect to happen. And so part of that is being responsible enough to look at what we're actually viewing. How often are we observing forms of violence in our media? And how often does that sort of go through our head where when we see violence actually happen in the real world, we don't really know what to say about it. And one of the biggest things is looking at social norms theory, especially when we're talking about men and how do we encourage men to sort of speak up in those situations where they are uncomfortable. Because what we know about social norms is that while the majority of men believe that the majority of men ascribe to certain stereotypical ideals of what it means to be a man or what is appropriate, individually, most men don't ascribe to that on a personal level. And yet, how often are we seeing people sort of go along anytime somebody says a sexist remark or a misogynistic joke or brags about having sex with somebody? You know, and how often do we see, especially college students or people at bars or parties intervene when they're seeing one of their friends or somebody maybe they don't really know? carrying somebody up the stairs who barely can walk, right? So among doing bystander intervention, uh, making sure that you feel confident and comfortable intervening when you see something potentially happening and checking in on that, what else could we be doing to prevent the violence from even being something that would be normalized? Having difficult conversations starts at home. Educating children about their bodies, body autonomy, safe and unsafe touch from a young age is an important way to keep them safe. Language and education are the tools children need to tell trusted adults and healthcare professionals when they need help. Talking about consent means raising children who understand that sexual abuse is wrong. 
And it's important to teach them that they have the right to be safe, to respect the rights and feelings of others. Here Jessica shares why this is the single most important thing that any parent or caregiver can do to address domestic violence. One of the biggest things that I talk about is how are we talking about consent? How are we teaching children consent? A lot of parents sort of pull away from the idea of teaching consent because they believe, well, I don't want my kids just to know that they can go have sex. But the reality is, is that when we don't teach our children something, we teach our children something. So for instance, if you have kids and you have grandma and grandpa come over, how often are we sort of saying, hey, go give grandma and grandpa a hug, right? And how often do the kids run up to grandma and grandpa to give them a hug? without just saying, no, I don't want to, or kind of being forced into it. And that is a normal behavior that I grew up having happen a lot. And and so what we inevitably end up doing in those circumstances, when our children are telling us, no, they don't want to give somebody a hug, is we teach them two things. The first thing is that we are teaching our children that they don't have autonomy over their own body. It means that anybody can touch their body. And in fact, certain people have a right to touch their body when Ever they want to. And the second thing that we teach them is that it is our responsibility to deal with the emotions and the after effect of what somebody feels if we don't give them access to our body. And while it may seem kind of meaningless, like what's the worst thing that can happen by having our children hug grandma and grandpa or aunts and uncles, is that that child grows up believing those two ideas about themselves. And they become sort of in this place of not knowing whether or not it's safe to say no when they don't want to engage in sexual activity or they don't want to do something uh, with another person. And so it makes them more susceptible to peer pressure. And so we as a society have to become comfortable with giving kids more autonomy. Obviously, we have to navigate medical appointments, bathing and stuff like that. But when we give our kids that ability to practice giving consent, to practice understanding what it means to want to give somebody a hug versus what it means to feel like you're being forced to give somebody a hug, we actually create children that are going to turn into adults, that are going to be able to advocate for themselves, uh, where they would feel comfortable saying no, or they would feel comfortable saying, hey, this happened and I'm really uncomfortable with it happening. For any man or woman out there who's experiencing domestic violence at the moment, there are so many organisations offering support and safety, like the National Domestic Hotline in the United Kingdom or the National Domestic Helpline in the United States. But taking that first step to get support actually starts with realising that you are not the problem, as Jessica explains. One of the hardest things that I ever experienced was having to sort of sit down and reflect on on what had happened to me and the amount of times it had happened to me. Being abused as a child, I sort of created this worldview that the world was full of monsters and that I didn't really know where I was going to be safe and who was safe to be around. And as I entered into adulthood, I found myself sort of clinging to some of the same experiences that I had had as a child, but I didn't really recognize that. And so I remember when I was sitting around a table full of women in my early 20s, and they were all talking about these experiences of violence. Of course, they weren't saying it was violent. And I just thought, wow, 
there's so much internalized shame about our experience that not only are we unable to name the violence that is happening to us, but we are unable to say the violence that is happening to us or happened to us without feeling like we were somehow responsible for it. And so I think that's the biggest thing I want people to understand is it is never our fault that we're experiencing sexual assault. We sort of put victims inside of this box and we either allow them in that victim box and say, yes, you're a true victim, or we pull them out and we say, you're not a true victim. You, this is just your life and the way that it was supposed to happen. And so understanding that coming out and speaking about your experience of sexual assault making sure that you have a community around you. And if you don't have that, there are advocacy agencies all over the world that you can connect with and, and get that support and find out what that means for you to just be able to vocalize it. Because I know firsthand how the shame of experiencing sexual violence led me to wanting to end my life 11 years ago. And, and that I just thought, I can't live anymore like this. I feel so dirty and disgusting. And like, no matter what I do, I'm going to bear this with me. And that I just felt like a monster. Anybody who could look at me could see how tainted I was. And to know that I'm, I am not the sum total of what has been done to me. I am not responsible for what has been done to me. And as a society, we hold a lot of responsibility for turning our eyes and our backs to the violence that is happening to the most vulnerable in our society. And we need to shift that so that victim survivors have a space to speak and get the support that they need in order to be able to thrive and be productive citizens of whatever country they live in or, or whatever world they live in so that they feel good about who they are and know that who they are is not a representation of what was done to them. One of the biggest lessons I learned going through trauma therapy was that my experiences of trauma don't define me. They certainly define how I view the world in certain ways, but I still have a right to have boundaries. And I don't have boundaries simply because I never had them and they were taken away from me as a child, but I am a human. I deserve boundaries. I deserve respect. I deserve love. And ultimately, I have control over what happens to my body. And when somebody violates that, that's on them, not me. Finally, Jessica shares one action that each of us can take to tackle domestic violence. So much of the work that I do is really sort of internalized thinking, right, and challenging those patterns. And so I think one of the biggest things that we need to sort of challenge in our thinking is how we view victims, survivors of sexual assault in the relationship of whether or not we're going to believe them or not. Uh, if we look at two different individuals and both individuals have accusations of sexual assault against them, why are you more likely to believe an individual for, you know, guy A, but you're not willing to believe individual for guy B? And I think internalizing that thought and checking that and asking yourself, am I questioning the behavior of a victim survivor or am I recognizing that there's a cost to me actually believing victim survivor of guy A? Because oftentimes when we are dealing with believing victim survivors, sometimes we, we can easily 
put them back inside those boxes and say, this is a perfect victim and this is not a perfect victim. But more often than not, we struggle to believe victim survivors when we find out who committed that alleged sexual assault and whether or not there is a significant cost for us if we were to believe that victim survivor. So whether or not that means we are going to lose out on business partners, uh, political affiliations, family members, what do we lose when we have to believe victim survivors? And so I would say that would probably be the biggest thing that we could start to challenge internally is when we start to hear about victims of sexual assault, what do we typically think about and how is that impacting our ability to provide support to an individual who's experienced something? While topics like domestic violence can be hard to confront, we need to. Each of us has a role to play in creating a less violent society, whether that's raising our kids to understand consent or devaluing hypermasculinity, which creates a lot of these issues, or challenging our own assumptions and beliefs about these topics. As Jessica explained, all of us can be advocates for a better, safer world. Before you go, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or the electronic or audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. In reading The Fix, you'll learn how gender inequality works, what the 17 most common barriers are that all women face, and how gender inequality creates challenges to men's fulfillment of work. Most importantly, you'll learn what we can do to remove these obstacles and how we can begin to make workplaces work for everybody. So get your copy today and let me know what you think by leaving a review on Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.